Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here with your people as we worship you and as we remember the unique ways in which you minister to us at Christmas. God, I thank you that you continue to speak to your people, that you show us kindness and grace and mercy, that you continue to mold us and transform us. And as we have been talking over the last number of months and seeking you and seeking your word, that you are continuing to change and to grow and to mold Old North Church. We pray that as we look at your scriptures today, that you would continue to do this work among us and that we would be found as a people of open and glad hearts. We pray this in the name of our son Jesus, your son Jesus. Amen. What is the next act for Old North Church? Eight weeks ago, we began a series that we are calling the next act, and I asked you the question, what kind of church do you want to be? You have a new pastor, you're in the middle of transition, you have a new season. What kind of church do you want to become in the weeks, months, and years ahead? Because there's a lot of different ways that you could describe the characteristic of local churches. And as we continue down this road that we're on, it is our goal to intentionally shape the culture and the practices of our church together. And we want to do that in a way that is in line with what the Bible presents to us as a healthy church. So we've been looking through the book of Acts. We've seen a number of different descriptions for healthy churches. Let's remind each other a little bit, shall we, of where we've been over the last couple of months together. In Acts chapter 2, we saw that the church was formed and filled with the Holy Spirit. And we want to be a church, of course, described in this way. We saw in that same chapter that this church made a center point of their life together to be the worship of God in the context of community. And we were challenged that in that dynamic, that worshiping together in the context of community is something defining for who we are, our corporate worship together, what we're doing this morning in a lot of ways, congeals a healthy church family. So much so that we ask the question, is it worth it to be here three weeks a month? Every week? If this is really at the core of our practice together, how do we look at the importance of community? In Acts chapter 6, we saw that God works actively in a dynamic with people who are of open heart. And that was contrasted with a group of people who were stiff-necked. We do not want to be stiff-necked people. We saw in Acts chapter 8 the dynamic of life change that happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and how the message to the world around us really is to come as you are. And each one of us comes as we are into the community like this, but we don't expect to stay that way. Because God never leaves us the way that we were. He changes us in an ongoing fashion. Acts chapter 9, we saw what genuine conversion looked like. Not just spiritual affinity 
to God or the things of God. Not just vague spiritual notions, but true and genuine conversion when one meets the Lord Jesus and he saves them. You might remember right before Thanksgiving, we talked about what it meant to be a praying church, and we spent some time in prayer together around a number of specific topics. And following Thanksgiving, Pastor Chris preached from Acts chapter 14, and we talked about how the church, God's people, often grow through the context of tribulation or difficulty. It's common belief out there that, well, you put your faith in God, things should just get better in your life. And in so many ways they do. But when things become difficult, that is not necessarily a sign that God has turned his back on you or turned his back on us as a family. But instead, God often grows his people internally and in the breadth of their ministry through difficulty and tribulation. Last week in Acts 17, we saw Paul on Mars Hill, and we talked about the dynamic of meeting people where they are and leading them to the Savior. We live in a time and in a context where you will find all sorts of different spiritual beliefs and people coming from different backgrounds and frameworks and foundations. And for the Christian to meet people where they are, not just to expect them to come to you, but for you to go to them and engage in a really specific and direct way, person to person, group to group, and then lead them to the Savior. And you'll notice that these descriptions that we've picked in the book of Acts to describe the church are not characteristics that are based on style. If you were to ask your friend or your neighbor what their church is like, or if they were to ask you what your church is like, you would often get an answer that is based on style. We have this kind of music. Our preacher sort of preaches this way. We are this big or this small. We have this type of building or these types of programs. But the biblical descriptions for a healthy church are not stylistic in nature. Instead, they're one of disposition and one of priority. And so today we come to the last sermon in this series called The Next Act. And we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me. And we see the last of the characteristics that we'll be looking at. In Acts chapter 20, let me set the stage for you. The Apostle Paul is meeting for the very last time with the elders of a local church. The church of Ephesus. And you know when you meet with somebody for the very last time, you know that you're never going to see them again. You tend to make your words count, don't you? You don't let the opportunity sort of slip away. Instead, if you have something important that you want to say to them, you make sure that that is the topic of your conversation. And that is precisely what's happening in Acts chapter 20 as he encourages the elders of a local church and he tells them in a very practical way, this is the type of church that you should be. Follow along with me as we read from Acts chapter 20 starting at verse 17. This is what it says. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, 
you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And behold, I, now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourself know these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all of these things I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him being sorrowful most because of the word he had spoken, that he would not, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. In his final words, to the elders of the church of Ephesus, Paul tells them what type of church they should be. And he gives a number of different descriptors but if we key in on the main point of this verse, we see it, or this passage, we see it in verse 32. And we could summarize it by saying this. Commitment to God and to his word places you in the position for growth. Commitment to God, the person of God, and to his word places you in the position for growth. And when we hear that, and we think about that, we must 
ask ourselves, well, how do we commit ourselves to God in this way that gives us this benefit? And throughout the whole first half of Paul's address, he gives really a couple of ways that we commit ourselves to God. And he does so by sharing his own example. In a very indirect way, he says, be like me. I've been modeling this for you for some time now. He's been serving as the role model. And the first way that he does in committing himself to God is by having a sense of urgency for fulfilling the purpose that God has for him. And it's interesting, in that sense of urgency, he ties the value of his own life to it. Look with me at verse 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now Paul knows that glorifying God with his life will ultimately lead to his harm. He just says that in verses 22 and 23. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I know that I'm not coming back here. And I'll probably be imprisoned and harmed. And yet, knowing that harm is coming his way, he still approaches his task with a tremendous sense of urgency. And this urgency is related to his understanding of commitment to God. We see this in other places in the Bible. Some of you might recall 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, Do you not know that all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Therefore you run as one who obtains this prize. Urgency for the task of glorifying God with his life. I wonder if you are running in this right type of sense. Not running away from God, but running with God in your task for glorifying him. You know, as a pastor, I get asked and I ask the question a lot, what type of church you want to become? And some people will say to me, Pastor, I want to be in a church that is dynamic and growing and sees people coming in and experiences real spiritual transformation and growth. And when we talk about our church in those types of terms, we all, a number of you right now, are nodding, yes, that's the type of church I want to be in. How do you become that type of church? One of the ways that you become that type of church is through a sense of urgency. A church is aggressive in its growth, both inward and outward types of growth, when the people of the church run with God for the task of glorifying him in their lives. Are you running? It's interesting to note that here Paul has this sense of urgency and he ties it to his self-worth or the value of his life. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. It's not precious to me. I imagine a number of you have seen 
the movie The Bucket List with Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. And if you haven't seen it, the movie is about two old men who are struggling with poor health. And they meet each other in the hospital. And after going through some time in the hospital together, they decide that if they ever get out, they are going to pursue their bucket list. That list of things that they've never been able to do that they've always wanted to do. And so you have this comedy with these two world-renowned actors who are in their 70s, jumping out of airplanes and driving race cars and doing the things that they've always wanted to do, and things that many of us always have wanted to do. And it's almost as if they're saying, I've reached the end of my life, or very near to it, and my life isn't worth anything until I do some of these things. I have to say, if I was completely self-centered and didn't have a number of the commitments that I had or have a sense of purpose beyond my own pleasure, I would have an awesome bucket list. I would go sport fishing in the Caribbean. I'd go skiing in the Alps. I'd play golf at St. Andrews. I'd go cave diving in South America. But Paul is so compelled by what Jesus has done in his life that he considers only one important piece of a bucket list. His life is worthless unless he accomplishes just one thing. And that is to glorify God through proclaiming this message of the gospel of grace. He considers that his whole purpose testifying to God's goodness. And again and again and again we see it through his life and through the New Testament and even for Christians in the early church. They have a purpose. It's not just to have fun. Their one bucket list piece is to glorify God. And at that they find fulfillment. I don't know about you, but the more I think about the purpose of my life, I want my life to be defined by what I give away to other people. Not in monetary senses necessarily. I want my life to be defined by the God that I give away to other people. The message of his grace. I want our church to be defined by the word of God that we give away to other people. Because experiences are very short-lived in their nature. But the message of the gospel of Jesus that defines a group of people like this, that takes people who are eternally separated from God and brings them into eternal relationship with God, this is something that is transforming. So we see that Paul commits himself to this. He commits himself to the person of God with the urgency to fulfill his task. Some of you are saying, now how can I commit myself to God in this way that you're talking about? And this is where his example also really helps us. We see four times in this brief speech this reoccurring theme of bold declaration. Look, look at it with me. Grab your Bible. Look at verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything 
that was profitable and teaching you. Look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Look at verse 31. I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And look back at verse 24, this verse that we've been keying in on. The course and the ministry of my life, the course of my life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This repetition of devotion in bold declaration. And we see in these examples that there's a lot of implied intention, isn't there? There's implied tension here. There's this dynamic that I did not shrink back, I did not shrink back, meaning he was tempted to shrink back, but he didn't do it because he didn't know how it would be received. There's a temptation to share only part of the counsel of God rather than the whole counsel. Why? Because he knows that if he speaks the whole counsel of God to people, that some of them will find it offensive. And this is important to know, Christians, that there's a difference between being mean and mean-spirited and being offensive. The culture would have you to think that they're one and the same. But we know that that's not the case. We know that Christians should never be sharing the message of God with a, with a mean spirit or with ill motives because we're talking about a God of love. Why would we do that out of ill will? But that's very different than doing it and finding someone who is offended because of it. And if that's the case, this is where we take our cue from the Apostle Paul. We know that if we're honest about who God really is, that he takes people who are sinners some of which who know they're sinners and some of which who aren't yet willing to admit that, and he calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus, this will offend some people. But he does it anyway. Because he's committed to the person of God. And that means he cares most about what God cares most about, which is making his glory known through the gospel. So Paul models for these Ephesian elders, for the church leaders, and for churches down through the ages. He models for us. How do we commit ourselves to God? Commitment to God and to his word places you in the position for growth. He told us how it does that in one sense. But now he goes on. And he tells us why. He models it for them and now he commends them to that model. Look with me at verse 32. If you walk away with any underlined portion in your Bible during this passage, this should be the verse. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. He commits these people, he commends them to word-based ministry. To commit or to commend here means to entrust to the care of someone. 
Now, there's great temptation today to entrust spiritual care of people to a wide variety of things other than this word of God. There's pressure to entrust spiritual care to psychologists. There's pressure to trust, entrust spiritual care of people to cool worship experiences. There's pressure on church leaders and pastors to make sure that when you come to church on Sunday, that you're not just fed with something, but that you're also leaving very well entertained and feeling good about yourself on that given day. There's pressure to commit or commend spiritual care to tight-knit programs or to specific personalities. And so when we ask the type of question, what church do we want to be, the answer needs to be more substantial than some of those things. Paul entrusts them to the word of God's grace. So let's be clear. He commends them to the person of God as he modeled in his own life. And to the word of his grace, which is the message of the gospel of Jesus, as is communicated through God's word, the scriptures. And he gives us three reasons why he does this in that really tight little verse. Reason number one, he says in verse 32, this word of God's grace is able to build you up. It's able to make you stronger, to make you bigger. How does it build you up? Well, maybe we can think about it like this. I have been in the middle of home maintenance projects for the last four or five months. My house was really pink when we moved in. We've been slowly depinkifying it through a variety of painting methods and schemes. We've been doing a number of other things as well. Uh, some new windows have gone in very recently. And all of those things are important to me. Uh, but one of the most important to me might seem important to some of you and trivial to others of you. The lawn is very important to me. Now, if you have five or ten acres of land and, and you, you say, Nick, you're an idiot. I don't have five or ten acres of land. I have a reasonable plot of land, and I want the lawn to look really nice. And I know that this is a project, and it takes time, and it takes focused effort. And so I'm not going to get it done in year one. And maybe by year two, it's going to start to look pretty good. And by year three, I'm shooting for straight up awesome. Now, if you drive by my house, you will probably see that there are weeds in the garden. I don't care. My neighbors might care. But what I care about is the lawn. And so last week, when it was before this warm spell, it was fairly cold outside. One of our elders here at the church, Jeff, was over at my house uh, working on the windows. And it was my day off. And sure enough, I realized, you know what? Spring is coming. i got to feed this lawn. And so I'm out there in 32-degree weather walking up and down the yard with my spreader. Step four and malorganite. Look it up. And Jeff is working on the windows, and he's kind of looking at me all funny. My wife's inside shaking her head. 
My kids are saying, Daddy, we're going to have green grass next year. And I do that because what happens when you take care of your lawn? When you feed your lawn? When you water your lawn? It builds deep roots. This doesn't happen in one application. This doesn't happen in one season. This happens over a long period of time. And in so many ways, the Word of God is like this. The Word of God is our food for the things of God. You want to grow up, be built up in God? He says, I entrust you to the Word of His grace. And in that Word, you will have deep roots, so that when trouble comes, you will not be swayed, you will not be torn away. And guess what? As a Christian, you probably look pretty good on the outside, too. He gives another reason. The second reason for commending us to the word of his grace is found in that he is, or the word is able to give you an inheritance. Look at verse 32 with me. Now, We all know that throughout the course of the scriptures, the promise of inheritance is significant. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you enter into the family of God, you become a co-heir with Jesus, and over ten times in the New Testament, we are told an inheritance waits for you. One example found in 1 Peter chapter 1 says that those who have received Christ for the forgiveness of their sins have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Those who have an inheritance act differently throughout the course of their life than those who don't. When you know that there is something waiting for you, It gives you a sense of boldness. It gives you a sense of security. It gives you a sense of comfort found in the promised inheritance. Now, how does the word of God give you this inheritance? Well, it does so in that the Bible points you to the person of Jesus, The Old Testament all leads up to and points to the coming of God's Son that we celebrate on Christmas and his subsequent death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. The New Testament all flows out of that same reality, and no matter where you are, it's always giving you a glimpse, pointing you back, pointing you forward to the person and the work of Christ. This Christ who gives you this inheritance and it's, um, it's amazing, it's, an, um, it's a miracle in this sense that it, God does this not in some sort of lifeless, flat, or propositional way, but that in his divine nature, the scriptures minister to you where you are. And so if you're here today and you're feeling terrible, God has something for you. If you're feeling joyful, God has something for you. And he'll have something even different for you next week than he does this week, even if it comes from the same scripture. It's amazing how God reveals himself in this ongoing fashion and secures for you 
this inheritance as the Bible applies to your life. Paul gives us a third reason that the scripture or the word of God's grace is commended to us. And that third reason is that it positions us among those who are sanctified. Verse 32. The word builds you up. The word gives you an inheritance. And that inheritance is among those who are sanctified. Now what does that mean to be sanctified? Do you know? To be sanctified means that God makes you holy. From the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he starts you down this road of making you more and more like him, which is making you holy. And so when somebody says to you, oh, you Christians, you guys are just a bunch of holy rollers, you can say, well, not yet, but we're on the path toward being made holy. How does the word of God position you among the sanctified? Well, through this word, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. It shows you the way of forgiveness, and it clearly expresses the path of righteousness that is before you. It's food. It builds you up. It gives you hope. It gives you an inheritance. It positions you in a certain way as you engage with it because it's always pointing you back toward God and God's ways. And so Paul commends them to this word of God's grace. What does this mean for Old North Church? What kind of church do you want to be? Well, what this means for Old North Church is that we want to be a church that is driven by the person of God and the word of his grace. It means that we want to be a church that is immersed in it. And in so many ways, we're stepping very clearly down that path. It means that we want to have programs that are designed and events that are designed to help us grow, to be built up, to have an inheritance, to be made secure among the sanctified for our little kids, for our middle school kids, for our high school kids, for our young adults, for our adults. In corporate worship on Sunday, in the classroom behind the scenes, in the programs in midweek. Continuing to provide this opportunity to be built up have inheritance and to be among the sanctified. Because commitment to God and the word of his grace is what gives us or places us in position for growth. Now Paul says one more thing and I just want to highlight this briefly. Remember who this is spoken to or this part of the scripture is written to. It's written to the elders of a church. And for these elders, he tells them very plainly that they are to care for themselves, verse 28, and to care for the flock of God. They're called overseers in this sense. He knows that some will come in and threaten them, but that if they're commended to the word of his grace, the threat will be cast aside. Wolves will come and they'll try to twist what's going on. But if they stick to the word of his grace, they'll be built up. They'll have an inheritance. They'll be among the sanctified. And so 
he tells them, these are the most valuable to me. They're obtained with his own blood. Everybody wants to be part of something important. Everybody wants to be part of something valuable. And if there's ever a self-esteem booster in the Bible, it's something along the lines of this. The thing that God cares most about is you. The most valuable one in the universe cares most about you. So much so that as he says in verse 28, he gives overseers to care for these people because he has obtained them with his own blood. And as a result, he commends them to his person and to the word of his grace. What does this mean for you personally? It means that we sit under the teaching of the word. It means that we come together on Sundays and other times not to hear Pastor Nick speak, not to hear Pastor Chris or Pastor Marty speak, whether it's in the class or from the pulpit. It means that we come to sit under the word of God himself because it builds us up, because it gives us inheritance, because it positions us among the sanctified. And one of my most sincere desires for you as a church, and something that I pray for you for, is that you will continue to grow in your appetite for the scriptures. It's um, an appetite that for some of us we've had for some time because we know we meet God there. And for others of us, I, I understand it's, it's difficult in a sense. But one of my prayers for you is that you will have a greater appetite to meet with God in his word than you do for TV. Some of you say, Nick, I don't think that's possible. I've tried. I've tried to read this. It's too difficult. I don't understand what's going on. I don't have that appetite. You know, we have a two-year-old daughter named Noelle who seemingly has an appetite for just a couple of things. She has an appetite for hot dogs, bacon, chips, cookies, and grapes. That's it. And a wise saint told me, Nick, you need to help her develop her appetite for something else. And so every day when you have dinner together and she puts on that face, you say that she can't have anything else until she at least takes one bite of the dinner that you've provided for her. And in this way, she will develop an appetite for things through repeated exposure. I think in the same way, when we talk about the scripture as food for the things of God, we develop an appetite, one exposure at a time. And for some of you here, you're looking for a rhythm or for a mechanism, for an app on your phone or for a daily devotional, something to help you grow in that appetite. At Old North, there's a number of different ways that you can do that. But let me just highlight one. Um, this is something that some of you have done in the past. This is called E100. 
the essential 100 Bible verse reading plan. It's a way for you in the next year or less to look at 100 of the most important passages in the Bible and in this way whet your appetite for the Word of God and for the things of God. Um, really straightforward schedule, laid out plan. Do it on your own timetable. But I would encourage you, if you are at that place where you're like, I need to get into the Scriptures more, this is an easy, one of many easy tools out there. You can find it at the Welcome Center. They're, they don't cost any money. We're giving them away. And it will whet your appetite in this way. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said that he saw a Bible through which a worm had bored its way through, all the way through the book, from Genesis to Revelation. And from that hour, his desire was to become a Bible bookworm. Eating through the word, believing it, and digesting it all. Billy Graham once said to a reporter that if he had the last 10 years to live over again, that he would do a number of things differently. Billy Graham, and then he specified, I would spend more time studying, particularly plan to concentrate on the scriptures. Because when the end of my life comes, I want to be saturated in God's words. John Wycliffe, in talking about the Bible, once said, God's words will give men new life more than other words that are for our pleasure. O marvelous power of the divine seed which overpowers strong men in arms, soften hard hearts, renews and changes them into divine men, those men who have been brutalized by sins and departed infinitely far from God. Obviously, such miraculous power could never be worked by a priest if the spirit of life and the eternal word did not, above all things else, work in it. What kind of church do we want to be? There's a lot of descriptions that we've seen in the book of Acts. Dispositions and priorities. And in this final text, we see that commitment to God and to his word places us in a position for growth. May it be said of you, may it be said of me, and may it be said of Old North Church. Let's pray together. Father, whet our appetites even more for your word to us. Position us among your sanctified through it. Give us your inheritance. Give us good food to build us up, we pray. Lord, we know that there are so many temptations for our focus and for our affections. And we pray that the greatest of our desires would be for you and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.